Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. I'm Rob, and I'm here with a good pal of mine, friend, life partner, Dawn. Hello, yeah. Dawn. Hi there. How are you doing? Peachy, how are you? Doing well. We're gathered here today to talk about The Falcon and the Snowman, a movie starring Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. Don, I have to ask you, in 1985 when this movie came out, who did you find more dreamy, Timothy Hutton or Sean Penn? I did not find either of them to be dreamy. Why did I expect that? Neither one. Neither one. Timothy Hutton, he had like this boyish charm about him. Not my bag. Not your bag. And Sean Penn? No. No. Who was during that time? 85? 85. Sting? Okay. Okay. Mike Hutchins from In Excess. So guys with an accent. Guys with an accent, really erudite, very brainy. Really like that about Sting. Okay. Cynical. Okay. Really liked that. Yeah, I don't think Timothy Hutton would have hit cynical. No. No, not at all. No. Okay. Well, both of them starred in... Uh, Falcon and the Snowman, which was directed by the same guy who directed Midnight Cowboy and the Marathon Man, John Schlesinger. Oh. I do want to point out, though, that I do appreciate Sean Penn's lineage. Right? His Mm -hmm. dad, Leo Penn. Right? I'm not familiar with that. One of the people blacklisted in Hollywood. Was Leo a writer? I believe so. I would have to double check. Okay, we'll check that out for the fact check. But uh, his dad fought against all the McCarthyism going on. Wow. Was one of the people fighting against the tide of McCarthyism. Was he with Trumbo doing that? I'm not certain. But you can see where the streak comes in Sean Penn. Yeah, the activist streak? Yes. Yeah, I can see that. Not that it seems to come out quite the same way, but... No, it doesn't, does it? Sometimes he really falls flat with the activism. He's well-intentioned, but he doesn't quite hit it sometimes. I think we're digressing too much. I think we are. Uh, Falcon and the Snowman was written by Steve Zalian. And if that name sounds familiar, we talked about Steve in our episode about Moneyball. He also mm. wrote a few other films, such as Schindler's List, A Clear and Present Danger, which I think is one of my favorite Harrison Ford films. I like that one. And The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The Falcon and the Snowman was his first screenplay based off the book by Robert Lindsay. Robert Lindsay being a New York Times uh, investigative reporter who researched the case we're about to talk about here. And he wrote a book on it. The Falcon and the Snowman gets a 6.8 out of 10 from IMDb, an 82% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 68% rating from Metacritic. Now let's see how you like the film. Don, how did you like Falcon and the Snowman as a movie? What did you like about it? Hmm. I think I liked the structure of the movie. I liked that... They managed to hit the highlights without it feeling too much like it was just bullet points of the story about the two men. I thought that the conflicting sense of patriotism and uh, annihilation and cynicism 
and what that led to was done well. It was well-crafted. Yeah. Uh, what I really like about it is how focused this film was on the topic because of the way it presented the protagonist as vaguely backing into espionage. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't a hardcore, we must do this because it's a right to upend the government in this way. It was just kind of a boredom, vague unhappiness uh, in the Vietnam Watergate era with the direction government was going. And this is something we can do. And they just ended up backing into selling secrets to the Russians. And I thought the film conveyed that very well. There wasn't an overarching purpose. It was uh, just kind of a, let's see if we can do this. And then they were stuck. I could kind of see that. But what's the name of Timothy Hutton's character again? Uh, Timothy Hutton, Christopher Boyce. You could see Christopher's disillusionment. Mm-hmm propelling his actions oh yeah but at the same time he doesn't want to be compared to or um equated with people who are committing treason mm-hmm. yeah. that's exactly what he's doing i thought the film presented that fairly well uh was there anything you didn't like about the film mm, there's nothing in particular i actively disliked about the film I do think it was all right. I think all the other ratings land about where I do. You know, it was it was all right. It was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I want to point out that this film, which we mentioned came out in 1985, was fairly early in both the careers of Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. Mm-hmm. Timothy Hutton really became known with the film Ordinary People, which mm-hmm. came out in 1980, uh, got a number of Academy Award nominations. In 81, he was in TAPS with Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. and also with Sean Penn. Yeah. Which, by the way, taps with Sean Penn's first feature film. Oh, wow. And I think he was the standout in that film. It wasn't Fast Times? Are you talking about in order of filming or release? Fast Times came out in 82. Taps mm. came out before Fast Times did. Mm. And this film came out in 85. And I also found out something I didn't know. He had a cameo in the movie Risky Business that somehow I've missed all these years Hmm. that he did as a favor to the director. I also want to mention that you and I were talking just last week about character actors. Yes. Because we're big fans of Stephen Root. Cracked had an article today, by the way, on three ways in which Stephen Root made things better last night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is a great character actor. Uh Uh-huh. He just he embodies everything he's working on. Yeah. Are we digressing too much again? We're not digressing because I want okay. Because I'm moving right into talking about a couple other great character actors who okay. are both in Falcon and the Snowman. Pat Hingle, who plays Charlie Boyce, who is Christopher's dad. Mm-hmm. You might know Pat Hingle. He was in Norma Ray. He played Sally Field's dad. Oh yeah. That was our 15th episode we talked about on the podcast. Yep. He also played Commissioner Gordon in the Batman movies. Okay. Starting with Tim Burton's. By the way, was the actor in more Batman films than any other actor. He was in four of those films. Mm -hmm. His last one being Batman and Robin, Mm. which I think it's a requirement to say the one with the nipples. Do we have two for him, though? 
he was in it still. It's still the movie with the nipples on the bat suit. Yeah, we don't need to. And then also playing a father in the film, Richard Dysert plays Dalton Lee's father. He was in TV and film from 1954 to 2002, 87 credits in total, including eight years on L.A. Law, where he played Leland McKenzie, which is where most people might recognize him from. Mm -hmm. And then we also have David Sachet, who I thought was incredible as Alex, who is the contact at the Russian embassy. Yes. Which, okay, this movie was made in 1985. This is something that could not be done today. The character is Mexican. Mm-hmm. David Sachet is a British Shakespearean actor. Mm-hmm. He played Salieri in the original play of Amadeus. Mm-hmm. But Americans who watch PBS might know him as Agatha Christie's Detective Perot. Oh, okay. Okay, so you have a visual on him. Yeah. Which looks nothing like Alex in The Falcon and the Snowman. No. Not at all. So also a, a really great character actor there doing some work. And that brings us to the point where we give the film a rating as a film. Don, one out of five stars for the movie Falcon and the Snowman. What do you give it? I might give it a three and a half. A three and a half out of five? Yes. And yet you found nothing wrong with the film? I found nothing wrong with it. I just, it, it was a solid film. I mean, it, that's a that's a C plus or a B minus. That, that's a decent showing Uh, god i would go as high as a four okay four on it okay so four for me three and a half for you you said yes all right so we'll call it four okay okay fair enough so let's go ahead and talk about the historical accuracy of what was presented in the falcon and the snowman we're going to compare the overall story and some specific instances to determine if falcon and the snowman is a biopic that mostly sucks Is this going to make me angry like all your fact-checking on every other episode I'm on? (laughs) Wait, is there one that didn't make you angry? Which one? I, Tanya, didn't make you angry. You enjoyed I, Tanya. I did. And the fact-checking did not make me angry. No, no. I I don't think this will make you angry. I think it will confirm things that you felt for a while. All right, let's do this. Let's do it. Here's the areas we're going to talk about, Don. We're going to talk about the reason... Boyce decided to sell government secrets to the Soviets. We're also going to talk about what was going on with Australia. Australia is seen mentioned on the teletypes. There's a little bit of talk about Australia, but it was a prime motivator in why Christopher Boyce did what Christopher Boyce did. So we want to talk a little more about what was happening there. We're going to talk about security at TRX. TRX is the company in the film. In yes. real life, it was TRW, which is a government contractor. Mm-hmm. There's a big thing mentioned in the film, but not explained, where the Mexican police find a postcard uh, when searching Dalton Lee. And they get really, really angry. But it's never explained in the film what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to go past the film. We're going to talk about what's not covered there, which is their trial and their conviction and what happened to them uh, when they were in prison and after they got out of prison. Now, I want to note that uh, the story depicted in The Falcon and the Snowman takes place between 1974 and 1977. And it should be said at the outset, 
the movie did a very poor job at conveying that time period. Things look just a little too 80s. Um, mm-hmm. The clothing is too 80s. There's mm-hmm. even cars from the 80s in there. Hairstyles. You know, it, it's not hidden the 70s in the production design at all, even though they're watching the Watergate hearings live and they're placing it in 1974 mm-hmm. at the outset. But we're not going to dive into those anachronisms. I leave that for the IMDb goofs page. Mm-hmm. We're just interested in the historical inaccuracies that take place in the film. All right. Uh, it, it even went to the point in the film where a document that's being signed in the film shows a date on the document of 1984. Okay, so so much for not digging into we're, this We're part. not digging into it. Okay. I want to give a quick note about the research that was conducted for this discussion. Mm-hmm. When I start to research t- the biopics we do on the show, I start by doing an internet search of the movie name Fact or Fiction, and it usually pulls up a few different websites that have done most of the work that kind of gives me a, a path to follow. Mm-hmm. None of that existed for the falcon and the snowman oh i'm surprised especially in the current environment i think that would be a movie that would be of great interest because of the topic i was very surprised as well so in order to compare fact to the book there were two books i had to read in total and take notes the first is robert Lindsay's book about the case called the falcon and the snowman 359 pages um, only half of it made it into the film, but it's a great book to go read if you're interested in this case. Uh, the other half of that book is about the trial of Boyce and Lee, which mm-hmm. is interesting in its own right. Another valuable resource to build this episode was the book American Sons, the untold true story of the Falcon and the Snowman by Christopher Boyce and Kate Boyce. It is not as well written as Lindsay's book, but it is interesting for the first-hand account of events that Chris provides. Two books primarily were the source of the research for doing this episode, because not much else is out there. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. All right. We're going to start with why Christopher Boyce chose to sell government secrets. What the movie shows. The opening credits of The Falcon and the Snowman show kind of a worst hits reel of 1970s. Watergate, Vietnam, student protests, etc. The film shows Christopher Boyce watching the Watergate hearings and making mocking comments about the proceedings. The movie gives the impression that a bright, intelligent young man fell into selling government secrets to the Soviets due to a vague dissatisfaction with the U.S. government and possibly due to some rebellion in a father-son relationship since his father worked in the U.S. government. The film shows that Boyce and his friend, Andrew Dalton Lee, fell into selling secrets and got in deeper than they expected to. So, what really happened? One of the advantages a book has over a movie is that it can get deep into the background and inner thoughts of a character. The movie does its best to present the father and son relationship between Chris and his father. However, the movie is limited when it comes to presenting that Chris came from a large Catholic family. He was the oldest of nine children, and that he and Dalton were really altar boys together as they show in the film. In fact, Chris was mischievous, and he would drag his feet as he walked to hand out communion. Once he was charged with static electricity, he would touch the communion plate to his friend's chins. (laughs) 
and give him a jolt. He was a straight-A student, and when he took an IQ test in high school, he scored 142 points, placing him in the above-average category. Dalton had a different background. He was adopted. Dalton's birth parents were in the process of getting a divorce decree, and under California law at the time, a one-year waiting period was required. If the couple had sexual relations during that time period, the request for the decree would be invalidated. Rather than report the pregnancy to the court, Dalton's birth parents chose to give him up for adoption. Wow, that's that's loaded. Uh, you may think from the film that Dalton and Chris were best friends, but they weren't quite. They were buddies. They both attended Catholic school in primary grades, and then they both wound up at the same public high school. And now they were students who had that shared experience of being their first time to a public school together. So they could relate to the background each one came from and the new experience each one was having. Oh, sure. However, the more Chris hung out with Dalton, the more he smoked dope and the more his grades dropped. In the film, whenever Dalton appears and Chris's parents are in the room, Mm -hmm. you see them giving sideways glances to each other. Mm -hmm. The reality of that is they were of the belief that Dalton was the reason why Chris dropped from a straight A student to a straight C student. In fact, Chris's parents sent Chris to a different high school, but it didn't stop him from getting together with Dalton to get high and fly their Falcons. Mm -hmm. Now, this wasn't mentioned in the film as well. The snowman had Falcons. In fact, one time Dalton took Chris out to a field to show him a red-tailed hawk he had just bought. And once he released it, the hawk circled back and latched its talons onto Dalton's face. I'm sure that wasn't funny to him. It actually sounds pretty dreadful, but that that says a lot. Yeah, it gets described in American Sons that the hawk was latched onto his face and Dalton's arms are waving all over the place and he's running around. And he got rid of the, the bird shortly after that. Now, what the film does get right... I imagine it was an amicable split. <laughs> now, what the film does get right is in the film we see that Dalton has piranhas in a tank. Mm-hmm. and goldfish to feed the piranhas. Mm-hmm. We see that happening. They don't mention that he also had a pair of pet armadillos. Armadillos? Armadillos in Southern California. Huh. But back to Chris and his motivations. While the movie shows that Chris is Catholic and has made a decision to not enter the priesthood, the book by Robert Lindsay calls it out that Chris grew up in the Catholic Church that existed before the reforms that took place in the mid to late 60s. -hmm. And that brand of Catholicism had a clear line of right and wrong. It had clear lines of what constituted mortal sin and what actions would result in heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. And this aspect of Catholicism was reinforced as Chris grew up in a house where his conservative father was in law enforcement. And there were clear views from the law enforcement perspective of right and wrong. But as Chris got exposed to a larger world in public high school, Mm -hmm. he gained more perspective on that world. And the clear lines of black and white became more gray in a world of Watergate, secret bombings in Cambodia, and social justice actions from people of his generation. Once he started working at TRW, he gained even more information, which resulted in him selling the information 
in order to strike back against what he viewed as a government that had lost its way. The final straw was when he read what the CIA was doing in Australia. Do they hate kangaroos? So what's in the movie? There are some shots of a wire feed on the teletype machines that make a mention of labor activity in Australia. Mm -hmm. There are references made to the Australian government in microfilm and in news reports in the background. But not much more than that. So what was going in, uh, in Australia that would have motivated Christopher Boyce to engage in espionage? According to Christopher, in the Black Vault at TRW, there was a NASA encryption operation that supported the satellite surveillance of Russia in 1974. And in order for the communication between the satellites to work, there had to be different feet on Earth to relay the communications. Mm -hmm. So this is about the Earth is round and satellite signals don't move in curves. So mm -hmm. in order to be transmitted around the world, the straight lines have to come down and hit these feet is mm -hmm. what they're called. Mm -hmm. One of these feet was in Pine Gap, Australia. The public was only ever told that this was a military installation, specifically a space research station, and that the Australian public was concerned that they would now be a nuclear target in a war between the U.S. and the USSR. It's a fair fear. The United States government had an agreement with the Australian government to share all of the communication information from the satellites. Australia was, and is, an ally. They fought with us in two wars. But the United States government did not follow through on their agreement to share this information with our ally. Shocking. They also hid a new, more sophisticated Argus surveillance project from the Australians at Pine Gap, which was also in violation of the executive agreement between the two countries. Shocking. Now, according to Boyce, he was told by the project security director that the Labour government of Australia, that would be progressive or liberal government in Australia, was a threat to American interests. I remember that coming through in the movie. Yeah. When the Labour Party came into control in 1972, there was fear in American conservative circles that the KGB might find it easy to infiltrate a liberal government. <laughs> Why? Well, Why do they think it would be easier to infiltrate a liberal government? Because liberals aren't conservatives, Don. So they wouldn't catch someone who's trying to infiltrate them. Well, they'd be more susceptible to being infiltrated. Oh, so the people who eventually got hosed by a 19-year-old? Mm-hmm. Cool. Conservatives became more concerned when the Labor Party pulled Australian troops out of Vietnam, and Labor voices grew louder in demanding the purpose for the U.S. bases at Pine Gap. There were threats of strikes that would prevent material and personnel from reaching Pine Gap, and would prevent the CIA from making improvements to the bases. And that's the background to what we see in the film. Mm, because mm -hmm. Boyce reads encrypted communications about the CIA infiltrating Australian trade unions. Mm -hmm. That's the entire reason why the CIA was infiltrating those unions. Mm -hmm. But that background isn't provided in the film. At this time, Australia was in the midst of a constitutional crisis, which is too much to get into here, which saw the ouster of Prime Minister Whitlam from the Labour Party and the establishment of Sir John Kerr from the Conservatives. 
voice. I wonder who stirred that up. Conservatives from the United States? No. Nah, we wouldn't meddle we in another government. No, we don't get involved in, in fomenting a, the overthrow of a government in any way. Nah. Now, Boyce had heard a CIA project administrator refer to the new prime minister as our man Kerr. Chris found out from the telex machines that not only was the CIA meddling in the affairs of Australia, an ally, but that their satellites were also trained on our allies, France and Israel. Yeah, that sounds about on point. Very on brand. And at this point, as Chris is learning this, as the gray area is becoming more charcoal from his upbringing, Mm -hmm. he's now fully accepted as part of the intelligence community due to his high level of clearance but he hated what the CIA was doing in the name of the United States. He decided that nothing would scare the CIA more than selling NSA codes to the Soviets. Where the movie shows Boyce kind of backing into espionage, Mm -hmm. he didn't back into it. He ran full tilt at it. He had more of a purpose in real life than the film is able to show in its runtime. Mm Mm-hmm. How does a 19-year-old end up with so high a security clearance? Well, in real life, as in the film, Chris's father, who works in law enforcement, had Mm -hmm. a friend who worked at TRW. And while you couldn't hire your own child, you could hire a friend's child who would then do the same favor for you later on. But you still have to go through a, a background check and you have to show that you are worthy that you would be able to keep confidences and keep things secret. How did he gain that so fast? He was just hired into it. And, and wow. the, the next section we're going to talk about is security at TRX in the film mm-hmm. versus the real life security at TRW. And I think some of that might answer your question here. Okay. So what was in the movie? Security, such as it existed at a government contractor that worked on highly classified programs, was practically non-existent. The film shows that Boyce could bring a briefcase into a secure area and leave the grounds without the briefcase being searched by security. The film also shows that the staff in the Black Vault are mixing up margaritas using the paper shredder. And when I saw this movie, the very first time I saw it was probably in the late 80s on cable. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me that was a suspension of disbelief moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that almost took me out of the film. That there's no way a classified government contractor would allow those things. And these are devices being used by the filmmaker in order to move the story forward. Oh, see, I would think it's so outrageous that if it's not exactly that happening, that it was something similar enough that it was simply a substitute. Well, let's play a game, Don. Okay. Let's find out what really happened. I'm going to name three things that were shown in the film about security at TRX. Okay. You tell me if any one of these three things are false. Okay. The first one, the employees in the Black Vault use the paper shredder to mix drinks. 100%. Which? True. True. Number two. Boyce did get a guard to bring a plant to the Black Vault that contained codes that he was bringing back into the building. True. 
And the last one, employees could walk in and out of secure areas without having their bags and briefcases searched. Well, you already told me that he didn't get his search, so. In the film. Yeah. I said, but yeah. in real life. Ah. Uh, that's probably true, too. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Christopher Boyce give you the answers to this quiz. Because in April of 1985, while he was incarcerated for his crimes, he was called before Congress to testify on his experience selling U.S. government secrets. Oh, and neato. And here is what he had to say about TRW security. Within the TRW vault, management had effectively compartmentalized security away by making the vault such a highly secret area, those of us inside have been given, in effect, total autonomy. We worked under our own set of rules, or more accurately, lack of rules. We brought in an uncleared company locksmith and altered the numbers on the vault tumblers by half clicks to prevent unauthorized access by our superiors. We did not want them trespassing on our private preserve. We regularly partied and boozed it up during the working hours within the vault. Bacardi 151 was usually stored behind the crypto machines. Under security regulations, we were required to destroy the code cards for the machines daily in a destruction blender. We chose instead to throw the code cards towards, but not necessarily in, canvas bags in the corner. We used the code destruction blender for making banana, banana daiquiris and Mai Tais. Although only about eight people had authorized clearances to the vault, often many non-cleared members of our club, so to speak, would be in the vault for libations. On occasion, the project security manager would join us for a drink on the house. Part of our informal duties included frequent runs to the liquor store with orders from various employees throughout the building. We used the satchel for classified material as a cover to bring in their peppermint schnapps, rum, Harvey Wallbanger mix, what have you, along with our stout malt back into M4. In doing so, I sometimes used the satchel to take classified documents out. To return the documents, I used packages, potted plants, and camera cases. Packages and briefcases were never searched by the guards. On one occasion, I needed to return a rather large ream of documents, about this big, that I had taken out earlier in the satchel on a rhyolite beer run. I went to a floral shop and bought two large clay pots about two feet tall. I put the ream of documents in one after wrapping them in plastic, covered it with dirt, and then stuck bushy plants in both pots. I brought one of the plants into the building myself and asked the security guard to carry the plant holding the documents back into the building. He obliged. That's some shit. Yeah. Yeah, that is. So everything the movie shows is true and more, even though it looks like it would be a device to move the story forward. While security protocols at TRX were just baby town hijinks, it was the view of espionage that is the real issue, according to Boyce. Let's hear him talk about his reality versus what the staff at TRW were taught about espionage. And senators, I respectfully suggest that the overwhelming majority of the 4 million Americans with security clearances are extremely naive in their conceptions of espionage. That is the root of your problem. 
When I was at TRW, I and several hundred other relatively fresh employees were given a group talk on the perils of espionage. A clean-cut, all-American type addressed us from the podium. Here I sat with the KGB monkey already on my back, surrounded by all these young people who were being fed totally inaccurate and inappropriate descriptions of espionage. They were given the impression that espionage was some exotic, glamorous escapade. Handsome slob spies would seduce young American secretaries on their vacations in Brussels and bend them into secret agents for the KGB. That type of approach to preventing espionage was and is disastrous. That was just what all those bored young secretaries around me were dying to hear. It was surreal. A government spokesman, automatically accepted by everyone as competent, stood there entertaining all those naive, impressionable youngsters around me with tales of secret adventure, intrigue, huge payoffs, exotic weaponry, seduction, poison, hair-raising risks, deadly gadgetry. It was a whole potpourri of James Bond lunacy when, in fact, almost everything he said was totally foreign to what was actually happening to me. Where was the despair? Where were the sweaty palms and shaky hands? This man Ned's said nothing about having to wake up in the morning with a gut-gripping fear before stealing yourself once again for the ordeal going back into that vault. How could these very ordinary young people not think that here was a panacea that could lift them out of the monotony of their everyday lives, even if it was only in their own fantasies. None of them knew, as I did, that there was no excitement. There was no thrill. There was only depression and a hopeless enslavement to an inhuman, uncaring foreign bureaucracy. I hadn't made myself count for something. I had made my freedom count for nothing. Wow. Well, which part? All of it. But he nailed it. You know, when you make it sound sexy, it's just like anything else when they're trying to keep people away from something by making it sound sexy. It only makes it more appealing. As he said, even if it's only in their head. And do you think any instructor who's training about espionage is going to expect that one of his students in the room is currently conducting espionage? No. No. And it seems apparent that either they thought that tactic would work or that they had absolutely no fucking idea what it actually looked like, that they somehow envisioned that they were working in a world where James Bond might traipse through their their mm -hmm. world for a little while rather than look for the people who are angry and disillusioned, look for the people who don't say too much, look for all the clues that Bryce was talking about. Not not someone who suddenly has an extra bangle or yeah. took a trip. And, you know, I have to say that is one thing the movie did really well is none of what uh, Dalton or Christopher were doing looked exciting in any way. No. You know, as opposed to James Bond, it didn't look like anything I would ever want to engage in or be a part of. It, it, it looked stressful and heartbreaking the way it was presented throughout the film mm -hmm. and i would imagine that is much more true to life for a james bond type person mm -hmm. as well 
Well, you, you know, the, the unsaid thing in James Bond films is that's why he drinks so much and takes on so many women. Yes. It's because he's trying to compensate for that. Mm-hmm. But that's never really addressed in those films. No. No. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot to digest. Yeah. So they went on selling secrets. Uh, Dalton's main motivation was to raise money for future drug business operations that he wanted to put in place. Oh, yes. But let's go ahead and talk about when it all came down with Dalton and Christopher's arrest. What's in the movie is that it shows that Dalton Lee is arrested outside of the Russian embassy in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. Christopher Boyce was arrested in the middle of a field after he has released his falcon fox dalton is surprisingly charged with murder by mexican officials due to a postcard that's in his possession so what really happened dalton lee was arrested outside of the russian embassy in mexico city on a charge of littering which we see in the film Mm -hmm. police saw him toss a crumpled piece of paper over the wall of the russian embassy in mexico While in custody, the police found a postcard that showed the same intersection where a Mexican police officer had been shot and killed a week earlier. In the movie, we just see them uh, with the postcard, and Mm -hmm. they get aggressive, and they start yelling, murderer, murderer, but Mm -hmm. nothing else is explained about it. The reason why Lee had the postcard of that intersection is that this is how the Russians would communicate at which intersection he should leave the tape X's to indicate he was in town. Mm. The Russians would send the postcard to his sister's address. His sister wasn't knowing of what was taking place here. Mm-hmm. The date of the meeting would be seven days from the date on the postcard. It was just bad circumstance that Dalton had a picture of the intersection where the cop was murdered on him when he was arrested. When the Mexican police also found microfilm of documents on Dalton, they developed them and realized there was a matter of U.S. national importance taking place. They presumed that Dalton was a Soviet agent who had killed the police officer because he had found out what was going on. Dalton was actually to have a meeting with the Russians on the same night that he was apprehended by the police. He begged the police to let him go to the meeting and prove it to them. The police drove Dalton out to the intersection, where they saw the tape marks on the light poles. And then Dalton sat in the restaurant, surrounded by plainclothes Mexican police, and waited for the Russians to come. They never came. After a half hour, the captain packed up the operation and took Dalton back to jail. Dalton begged the police to let him attend a backup scheduled meeting with the Russians. Mm -hmm. Dalton waited by a bus stop, and again, no Russians showed. Of course they didn't. They saw the Mexican police everywhere. Now the police were convinced that Dalton had killed the police officer and was a member of the 23rd of September Communist League a Marxist-Leninist guerrilla movement in Mexico, which the government considered a terrorist group. That is unfortunate. During the two years that Dalton and Chris were committing espionage, Dalton had been arrested on various drug-related offenses in California, where he served no more than seven months in a minimum security prison, and was usually able to get let off on probation with the promise of seeking treatment and staying in California, neither of which he ever did. In Mexico, the criminal justice system works a little differently. 
the Mexican police interrogated Lee for a second day. On the third day, he was told he would be released. His jacket was pulled up over his head so he could not see where he was going, and he was led to a car. He was turned over to the Federal Bureau of Security, the Mexican secret police. After the car reached its destination, he was blindfolded and led to a room where he was questioned by officers who were more friendly. He was allowed to sleep for a few hours and then was questioned by less friendly officers. The officers again insisted that Dalton killed the police officer. He tried to understand what they were saying in Spanish and reply in his broken Spanish, but the questions came quickly and were in a very heated tone. When he said he didn't understand, the officer behind him would slap him on both ears. When he would deny killing the officer, he would be slapped on the ears and have more questions screamed at him. He told them that he was hired by the CIA through Christopher Boyce to sell bogus secrets to the Russians to distract the Chinese. The Mexicans were still more concerned with the slain police officer. A thought had developed among the interrogators that the murdered officer might have had a chance to get a shot off on his attacker. They ordered Dalton to strip naked and examined his body for bullet wounds. When they found none, and Dalton started to gather his clothes to get dressed, he was ordered to stop. An interrogator took a sword off the wall and held the blade three inches from Dalton's genitals. He said that if Dalton did not tell them why he killed the police officer, they were going to fly his testicles from the flagpole. Damn. Dalton was then allowed to sleep, and questioning continued a few hours later. When he didn't understand a question now, he got punched in the kidneys, which progressed to being punched in the kidneys without reason. He was then carried upside down to a fetid toilet, and his head was dunked into it, which we see in the background during Mm -hmm. a conversation in the film. Mm -hmm. After six days of torture and shitting himself due to the tap water he was given to drink, Dalton was brought to an office where two CIA agents asked him some questions. He was so desperate to leave Mexico that he signed away his Miranda rights. Wow. While all of this was going on, Boyce was out of the espionage game. He had left TRW and enrolled in the University of Riverside to continue his studies. He enrolled in a class in Soviet history. Oh. (laughs) Of all choices. Hmm. The movie does show him going to an airport to try to catch a flight out of the country. Mm Mm-hmm. He did go to Ontario Airport near Los Angeles, but decided that it really didn't matter where he was. The FBI was going to catch up to him regardless. While he was attending University of Riverside, he was renting a shack on a former turkey farm outside of the city when he was arrested. Mm -hmm. This basically takes us up to the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. because the end of the movie shows the perp walk down the hallway. But... I think now's a good time, before we move on to the other aspects that aren't in the film, to give a letter grade on The Falcon and the Snowman. Mm. So, fact versus fiction, Falcon and the Snowman. I know you said there's some things to digest here, but in the conversation, in the moment, what letter grade do you give Falcon and the Snowman for historical accuracy? I give it a B. A B? A B sounds good. I go with a B as well. B's all around for Falcon and the Snowman. Well, now we're going to talk about Lee and Boyce's trial and incarceration. And even though this is outside of the scope of the film, I think the information that is out there gives an interesting perspective on the life of a person who is incarcerated and the complexities of the law that are involved to garner a person's freedom. Mm -hmm. 
So what was in the movie, as we mentioned, Boyce and Lee are being led down a hallway, shackled wearing L.A. County Jail jumpsuits. They were found guilty in 1977. Boyce received a 40-year sentence, and Lee received a life sentence for their crimes. That's pretty heavy duty. In the film, we see a friend of Chris's father talk about trying to find a way to not prosecute Chris. In real life, the parents of Chris and Dalton almost didn't have to find a way to avoid prosecution. The U.S. government contemplated not prosecuting them at all for their crimes. Because? In order to make a case that a crime had been committed, the government would need to provide evidence of what was stolen. The U.S. government was not keen on making public in trial clandestine satellite systems that surveyed our allies, nor CIA or NSA covert operations. The CIA agreed to release the documents about the Pyramider Project. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's the project you hear most about in the film. Yes. Is Pyramider. But if that's a concern, then how do they prosecute any espionage case? Well... What the government did is they agreed to release information about the Pyramider Project as an example Mm -hmm. of the types of documents that were stolen. Mm -hmm. But if it became necessary to share the documents about the Argus and Rio Light satellite projects that Boyce and Lee had stolen and sold to the Soviets, Mm -hmm. then the decision to prosecute them would have been withdrawn. Huh. Now, Argus and Realite satellite projects do get a brief mention in the film. Uh, You do see on a binder during the inspection in the vault, Mm -hmm. a binder with Argus written on it. Yes. And Realite is mentioned a couple times. Yes. But it's the Pyramider project that takes center stage in the movie. Yes. The prosecutors also had a hurdle with the statements Boyce and Lee gave to the FBI. Both of their statements had been stamped top secret due to the nature (laughs) of what was discussed. Which presented the same Jesus. which presented the same problem as to how to bring evidence of what was stolen forward into trial. And also, Lee gave his statement after a week of torture in a foreign country, which could be fought by the defense as inadmissible. Sure. The government's only recourse would be to offer Boyce a deal and have him give information on Lee. Both Boyce and Lee could have received a lenient sentence of six years under the Youth Corrections Act. Mm -hmm. Boyce received 40 years. He lied that Lee had blackmailed him into getting the documents from TRW. (laughs) And Lee received a life sentence. He lied that Chris was working for the CIA and had recruited him. Oh, my God. But now we get to the part of the story and the person you had asked about, Don. Let me introduce Caitlin Mills to the narrative. She's also known as Kate Mills. C-A-I-T is the spelling Mm -hmm. for Kate Mills. And she was a paralegal living in San Diego, California. She had read Robert Lindsay's book and felt sorry for Dalton Lee and decided to get him out of prison. Hmm. Does this sound familiar to another episode we discussed? Yes. We talked about Bernie, where Jodie Calloway Cole approached Richard Linklater, the director of that film. Yes. To ask him for the trial transcripts in order to file an appeal on Bernie Titi's behalf. Mm -hmm. Well, in regards to Kate Mills, after she read Lindsay's book, 
she felt that Dalton's sentence of life in prison was extreme Mm -hmm. and that his legal defense had been a joke. And she also saw an opportunity. Now, you may wonder if Dalton received a life sentence and Christopher Boyce received 40 years, how could they be eligible for parole so quickly? How quickly were they eligible for parole? Well, when Judge Keller, the sentencing judge, uh, sentenced Boyce and Dalton, he did so under a statute that allowed anyone sentenced to more than one year in prison to be eligible for parole. So the answer to your question is immediately. Huh. Dalton had been in prison for four years when Kate contacted him. She figured if she could build a case for parole and Dalton had the right to go before the parole board every 24 months, then there was a shot at getting him out of prison. Mm -hmm. In 1977, when Boyce and Lee were sentenced for espionage, there were no mandatory minimum sentences. Those mandatory minimum sentences came about with the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. Oh, yeah. Kate started representing Lee in 1981. And every two years, they would go before the parole board and get shot down. Kate had a conversation with a prosecutor who prosecuted espionage cases. And she was asking him, what is it she needs to do? She just felt she was bumping up against a wall every time they went before the parole board. Mm -hmm. And this prosecutor said that what you really need is you need a letter from the sentencing judge. Oh. Now, by the time she had this conversation, it was 1992, Mm -hmm. and Judge Keller had moved on to be a judge in the state of California Central District Court, and he was in his early 90s. And he wasn't really a fan of Boyce and Lee at all, claiming that if he could, he would have given them the death sentence. Oh. And in interviews, he referred to Lee as pawn scum. Oh. So he had an opinion. He had a definite opinion about the two men. But Kate gave it a shot anyway. It was the only shot she had. And she included items in a packet for Kelleher. And these items were recommendation letters from the prosecuting attorneys, Lee's record of conduct, Lee's letter of contrition, a letter of recommendation from the warden on Lee's behalf, and... This is one I hadn't heard about. Evidence of Lee working in the dentist's office at Lompoc Prison using his certification in dental laboratory technology. Mm -hmm. He was the first inmate to pass that course. Oh. And was assigned as the primary dental laboratory specialist for several facilities in the California prison system, which meant he was saving the state a ton of money. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Unpaid labor. Hmm. Keller wrote a letter back to Kate giving his recommendation for parole to Andrew Dalton Lee. Dalton was released from prison in 1998, serving 21 years of a life sentence. Wow. Six months later, Kate wrote a letter to Christopher Boyce to offer her services to him. Lee's parole paved the way for Boyce's parole. However, Boyce had a little more on his record than just espionage. Since he had been serving time for espionage, he had also been sentenced to three years of additional time for escaping from Lompoc Prison and 25 years for committing numerous bank robberies during his 19 months on the run. Oh, so he escaped successfully and was gone for 19 months? Yes. Wow. And he committed bank robberies? Bank robberies. Huh. 
It's an unusual way to try to stay off the radar of law enforcement. The story of Boyce's escape is kind of funny because Lompoc Prison held a movie night for the inmates. Mm -hmm. Now, this movie night was held in 1980. Mm -hmm. So if I were to ask you of films that came out before 1980, Mm -hmm. that a prison probably would not want to show... Escape from Alcatraz. Bingo! The prison showed the inmates Escape from Alcatraz. Uh, in 1980, Boyce escaped Lompoc using a plan, as the Daily Mail said, quote, with elements that seemed to be lifted from Clint Eastwood's Escape from Alcatraz. And that's because they were. Uh, he saw what Clint Eastwood did in the film. Mm-hmm. He applied it to his escape. Mm-hmm. Right down to making a paper mache likeness of himself in his bed. Huh. Now, How industrious. Now, Boyce escaped a year before Kate was working on Dalton's case, 1981. Mm -hmm. He was on the run when Kate started working with Dalton. Boyce spent his time hiding out, robbing banks, and taking flying lessons. How was he able to get flying lessons if he was on the run? I, I have no idea, but he was taking flying lessons. All right. Because his plan was to learn to fly a helicopter and break Dalton Lee out of Lumpock. <laughs> okay. Boyce was captured while munching on a cheeseburger in his car at a fast food joint called The Pit Stop outside of Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. An FBI agent opened the passenger door of his car and with <laughs> his gun drawn said, you're under arrest, put down the cheeseburger. <laughs> oh my. Oh, wow. When Boyce was recaptured after 19 months on the run, Kate flew up to Seattle. She wanted to talk with Boyce to see if she could get some information to help Lee. In particular, she wanted to rule out that Lee had any knowledge of Boyce's plans to escape from Lompoc. Mm -hmm. Because while there was no information that said Lee was involved, Mm -hmm. there also wasn't information that said he wasn't involved, and that doesn't exactly cause a parole board to... Move in your favor. Mm-hmm. Boyce was sentenced to an additional 28 years in prison, in addition to the 40 years he was already serving. He was sentenced to three years for the escape, 25 years for the bank robberies, and if he had not escaped, he would have been paroled by 1987, just six years after his escape. Jeez Louise. Now, when Kate arrived in Seattle following Boyce's recapture, she was present for Boyce's perp walk. And she described what she saw in the book, American Sons. Now, Mm -hmm. when you read American Sons, Chris is writing in the first person, Mm -hmm. Kate's writing in the first person, Mm -hmm. and they have a third person who's also authoring the book, writing from a third person perspective. Mm -hmm. This will give you an idea to Kate's style of writing. Here is what she writes about Christopher Boyce's perp walk that she witnessed in Seattle. Hit me. His wrists and feet were shackled, and he had on a blue short-sleeved jumpsuit with the collar popped defiantly up. The top buttons of the jumpsuit were undone, revealing a bare chest underneath. she writing for Harlequin? The way he wore his hair made him look like a cross between Elvis Presley and James Dean. I didn't exactly swoon. In fact, I almost laughed. 
but the moment Christopher Boyce fixed his stare on the small crowd of onlookers that had assembled where I stood, I was mesmerized. Stan. Yeah, it's it's not great writing. The book is quite uneven in tone, and it sound at times it sounds like Kate Boyce is trying to write a hard-boiled espionage thriller, such as when she refers to Boyce's bank robberies as quote made a bunch of unauthorized bank withdrawals by pistol. However, uh, okay. I found the book to be interesting because of the first person's pers- perspective that Chris gives on his incarceration. Mm-hmm. When Boyce was recaptured, his trial was held in Boise, Idaho. But he was flown to a maximum security cell at the San Diego Metropolitan Mm -hmm. Jail every day and flown back to Boise for the trial. Why? No reason is given. Hmm. After his trial, he spent 81 days at the U.S. Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas in solitary confinement. Mm, From there. From there, he was transferred to Marion Correctional Institution in Marion, Ohio, where he spent a year in K-Unit, isolation wing, where he was held in a windowless cell for 23 hours a day. Torture. It was while Boyce was at Marion that he testified before Congress, those audio clips I played earlier. Mm -hmm. Following his testimony to Congress, several politicians were able to get an outdoor recreation yard for Boyce. It was 45 feet wide and 100 feet long with pull-up bars for exercise and a corner with flowers and a shrub. The guards called it Boyce's playpen. He got his own space? He he was basically the only prisoner in solitary at Marion at the time. Oh, I see. And because he had cooperated with testifying to Congress, mm-hmm. there were Congress persons who were sympathetic towards him being in solitary and wanted him to have some outdoor time Mm. and they were able to get this 45 foot wide 100 foot long fenced in space outside where he spent the time reading and writing letters six months later he was transferred to the general population at the minnesota correctional facility in oak park heights after spending six years in isolation jesus While in the general population, he was assigned a parole date, and six months later, he was transferred to a supermax prison at ADX Florence. ADX Florence was nicknamed the Alcatraz of the Rockies, and it housed Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and Ted Kaczynski. Oh, the company you keep. The reason one might be sent to ADX Florence, could involve acting out in a manner that is violent and destructive or repeated attempts at escape. For Chris, it was because he wrote articles for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Oh, and what were the articles about? Well, the articles focused on what life was like behind bars and largely focused on how progressive the approach was at Oak Park Heights Penitentiary. But at this time, there was another inmate by the name of Bjork. Not the singer. (laughs) Same spelling, Bjork, who was a convicted murderer who started to threaten other inmates with impunity. Mm -hmm. In his article, Chris voiced his support for the death penalty for prisoners like Bjork Mm -hmm. and also accused the staff at Oak Park Heights for doing nothing to protect the rest of the inmates. 
The administration at Oak Park Heights quickly claimed that Boyce's safety could no longer be guaranteed and had him shipped to solitary confinement at ADX Florence. Wow. During this time, Kate was preparing Boyce's parole hearing. Kate tracked down most of the bank tellers who had a gun pointed at them by Boyce. They said that even though they could tell the gun was loaded, they never felt in any danger due to Boyce being polite and soft-spoken during the robberies. Kate and Boyce married in 2003. <laughs> of course they did. While she was working on his parole. Boyce was released on parole in July 2007 after serving 30 years in prison on a sentence that had grown from 40 to 68 years. Both Chris and Kate are on Twitter, although she may have moved to Tribe Social by now after all the Twitter stuff that's been going on. She threatened mm -hmm. to. There are pictures of Chris with his Falcons, and Kate is a big supporter of social justice and women's rights. Andrew Dalton Lee's path after release is a little more spotty. When he was released from parole, he was given a job as an assistant at Sean Penn's production company. Wow. Lee learned woodworking in prison and continued it after his release. He also did some work with a Redondo Beach attorney as recently as 2008. Kate kept in touch with him, even though he was jealous of the relationship that she had with Chris. But they had a falling out in which she detailed in a blog post in 2010, Basically, she got tired of everyone asking about Dalton Lee. They had become friends. She had worked close with him with the parole. He was at her home many times for holiday dinners. Mm -hmm. And this is all her perspective. This is all her, her saying this. But she says that Lee had convinced her to open a restaurant. And when she was on the verge of making it happen, she met Lee's partner in financing the venture, a drug dealer she had met behind bars as an attorney. Oh, man. She admits that she got so wrapped up in the dream of running a restaurant that she did not consider the danger of being in league with Andrew Dalton Lee and having it financed by drug money. Mm -hmm. After this encounter, the trail on Andrew Dalton Lee gets cold. I did some research. Mm -hmm. I was able to find a listing for an Andrew Dalton Lee living close to Palos Verdes, mm -hmm. where both he and Chris grew up. And his age is correct at 70 years. I found a phone number, and I thought of calling, but I decided that it's either a person with the same name who gets these calls all the time, mm -hmm. or if it is the Andrew Dalton Lee we're talking about, he hasn't put himself out there the same way Christopher Boyce has. Mm -hmm. And probably just best to respect that and leave him alone. Absolutely. So, there's a question that is out there which people wonder about, which is when did the CIA really know what Boyce and Lee were doing? Mm -hmm. Like you asked, how was it so easy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in the movie, it almost comes off as they were letting him do some of it because it was psych ops, misinf deliberate misinformation. The fact is that Boyce and Lee got away with selling secrets to the Russians for two years, and that is pretty astounding. And this is why people wonder if they were left to do it by the CIA. Mm -hmm. In the book, before any news about the espionage broke, co-workers at TRW made comments such as that Boyce is going to jail for the rest of his life. And that he was, quote, on everyone's list. Now, author Robert Lindsay contends that these remembrances by Boyce mm -hmm. may just be due to the paranoid state he was in at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
But Boyce was such a golden boy in the eyes of just about everyone, even after his arrest, Mm -hmm. that the comment about being on everyone's list could have been referencing future promotions. Mm -hmm. The comment about going to jail for the rest of his life came from Gene Norman, who is depicted in the film Mm -hmm. as a co-worker. Yes. Also having some residual effects from serving in Vietnam Mm -hmm. and his approach towards government and conspiracies. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gene Norman said that Boyce is going to jail for the rest of his life after they had a night of drinking. Oh. It was actually Gene who raised the idea of selling secrets that they had access to in the Black Vault prior to Boyce entering into selling secrets to the Russians. Hmm. It could have been said that in context of this topic, or it could have been taken out of context by Boyce due to inebriation. Mm Mm-hmm. If the CIA really did not know what was happening until Lee was in custody in Mexico, Mm -hmm. then that means the CIA was much more effective at keeping tabs on other countries than at people who work for contractor sites. Yep. But there are some people who do not believe that the CIA dropped the ball on this one. Reasons given include the fact that Boyce was a 21-year-old college dropout making $140 a week and was placed in a sensitive national security position. Uh, I think. So that, does that mean it was a setup? That they wanted him to sell secrets? That's what some people say. Some people say what I said earlier in the conversation, that in the law enforcement community, you do favors and hire each other's kids and you give them really sweet roles. Mm -hmm. because you can and it could have just been that but when it comes to the secrets in the black vault the pyramider papers were left unlocked when they should have been kept in a safe just like we see during the inspection scene in the movie Mm -hmm. the character of gene norman boyce's co-worker in the black vault even says in the film it is a dead project and he refers to it as bait but this is also a secure area that had become a nightclub Yes. Employees who did not have authorization to be in the vault came throughout the day for drinks. Now, it's hard to say with any veracity that a binder that should be in a safe being left out in the open is suspect when the employees who are responsible for keeping it secure are mixing drinks in the paper shredder. Mm-hmm. Was anything that Boyce testified to validated by anyone else? Was it corroborated? You mean regarding the espionage? Regarding all of it, everything that he talked about, the utter lack of security, the behavior of the staff of the vault. Well, those accounts come from American Sons, which is Christopher Boyce's firsthand account. And Mm. no, he doesn't bring other people's perspectives into it. He's just presenting his own. And Robert Lindsay's book doesn't quite touch on it to that degree, Mm -hmm. but it does mention uh, what we discussed that's in the film, those security laxes. So I would imagine Robert Lindsay would have had a second source Mm -hmm. on those, which is typical protocol Mm -hmm. for doing reporting. Meanwhile, Lee is seen going back and forth to Mexico. The movie alludes to the fact that he is on probation, but he was on probation for multiple drug offenses and was never stopped at the border. In the movie, when Lee is arrested outside the embassy, a representative of the U.S. embassy is there to help him. In the movie... This woman presents herself Mm -hmm. as being from the U.S. Embassy, Mm -hmm. as the Mexican police are grabbing him and handcuffing him. Mm -hmm. And Lee, the character, Mm -hmm. says to this woman from the embassy, oh, and you just happen to be here. Mm -hmm. In reality, 
there was a representative of the U.S. embassy when Lee was being arrested in front of the Russian embassy. And did she happen to just be there? There's some who say that that is all too coincidental. The oddest instance, and this is not mentioned in the movie, but was mentioned at Boyce and Lee's trial, Mm -hmm. was that Lee's fingerprints appeared on a circuit board of a decoder that never left the black vault. Hmm. Lee never entered the black vault at TRW. Hmm. Security may have been lax, but it wasn't that lax. So what do they think happened? What 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 conspiracies have been uh, surmised? Well, if the CIA was sloppy already, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't they be equally as sloppy at trying to plant Lee's fingerprints on a circuit board that never left the black vault? Okay. So people view it as a conspiracy and trying to frame Lee. Mm. And what about the woman from the U.S. Embassy? Not known. Not another mention. But just, I, I find it interesting what's depicted in the movie, the incredulous tone coming mm-hmm. from Sean Penn playing Dalton, mm-hmm. is what people in, in the conspiracy world view that as as well. Yeah. Now, the question is, if the CIA knew about Boyce and Lee's actions prior to Lee's arrest in Mexico City, what would be the purpose of allowing it to continue? Well, there's no better way to find out what kind of technology your adversary needs in this case, the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. than to find out what they are asking for. Mm -hmm. The U.S. could have linked the information to have an edge during the new round of SALT II strategic arms limitation talks that took place between the Russians and the United States. Mm -hmm. The CIA claims they did not know anything until Lee's arrest in Mexico City. At trial, the defense sought the CIA's internal reports of the affair. Mm Mm-hmm. The judge inspected some of the reports and reached the conclusion they would be of no use to the defense. (laughs) Oh, well, I could only believe that. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, I lean away from the conspiracy angle and think that the lax security measures at TRW and all of the CIA's contractors, for that matter, was the primary contributor to this affair taking place. Mm Mm-hmm. Additionally, the U.S. government did not want some information to be presented at trial. Mm-hmm. The decision had been made that if they were to share that information about Argus or Realite satellites, that they wouldn't move forward with prosecuting Boyce and Lee. Right. So I don't think what was being sold was viewed as bait by the U.S. government if they were not willing to prosecute if that information had to be put out, because that would look awfully bad in the public forum. Mm-hmm. News broke that these two men committed espionage and the government's not going to do anything about it. But they wouldn't want to admit that they used bait either. No. So but, we'll, we'll just never know. Because they're not going to say, oh, we use bait to catch people. But in public opinion, what would be the lesser of two evils? You have a, a, a U.S. population who's already dissuaded by Watergate and the Vietnam Who, who's War. Who's already disenchanted with the government, and how are they going to feel about the government baiting two teenagers into espionage? Which is the U.S. population going to react more strongly to? The U.S. government not prosecuting two men for espionage or putting bait out there? If they weren't going to prosecute them, the public <laughs> wouldn't really know about it. Their arrests made headlines. Right, but if they weren't going to prosecute them, then they wouldn't have been arrested, right? Not necessarily. Someone would have had to order the arrest. 
mm-hmm. they would have had to collect enough information about it. So you think it was a conspiracy? I don't know. But given how involved our government is in wagging the dog all over the world, if it's something simple like a disinformation campaign and they have a couple of kids, one who's got drug issues and another one who is obviously disenchanted with his government, and there are a few people who are more disenchanted than someone who comes from a black and white world and suddenly has to live in the worlds of gray. Or realizes they've been lied to their entire life. Well, that brings us to how we usually wrap up these discussions. Mm -hmm. Where we ask, was any harm done from what you know about what really happened? Do you think any harm was done in Falcon and the Snowman? I don't know. I would say there's certainly the possibility of their family members who may have not wanted this story told and may not have to relive all of this in the public eye Mm -hmm. again during another era when we were dealing with the utter mendacity and complete void of morality as we were dealing with Ali North and Iran-Contra. So that sort of behavior from our government was certainly on everyone's mind again or still in a separate context. So having that sort of thing highlighted might not have been comfortable or wanted Mm -hmm. by their families. I mean, you said Boyce was the oldest of nine. So by that point, he had siblings who were growing into adulthood Mm -hmm. and they were having to start their adulthood with this film hanging over their family. Yeah. That had to suck. Well, Sure. Film came out relatively quick after the real life events happened as well. 1977. And the movie uh, came out in? 85. Well, that's eight years. Yeah. That's That's a lot of growing up for younger siblings. But from what we've discussed, there weren't any gross mischaracterizations of Boyce or Lee. No, no, I don't think their their specific reputations were harmed in some way. I'm just wondering about the larger scale harms. Well, here's the ethical question. Will those be the fault of uh, Dalton and Christopher more than the fault of the filmmakers? No, the original harm is because of Dalton and and Boyce. But even that, you get into the complexities of... You can't control what other people do. Mm-hmm. You're not responsible for what other people do. Yeah. But we also know in this country, we love a good salacious story. Yeah. And asking people about their family members who have committed crimes or blaming them or seeking answers from them that they don't have and shouldn't have to be asked about is what we do. Right? Yeah. We have tons of shows on TV about true crime where that sort of thing happens. So making it into a film could certainly cause more harm. I mean, I don't know. Was there any information on how they felt about the film coming out or the books? No, no. I mean, um, it's mentioned in the film. Mm -hmm. Christopher's father says that his sons were beat up at school Mm -hmm. and called traitors. Yeah. So that that came out of the original reports Mm -hmm. that came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was no word if anything came out of the film itself. Mm-hmm. To that degree. Uh, there was one complaint that came from someone who's depicted in the film. And that person is Dalton's attorney, whose name is Kenneth Kahn. Mm-hmm. And he's seen in the film urging Dalton to become a drug informant. Mm-hmm. 
What really happened is that Kenneth Kahn, in addition to being a defense lawyer, he's also a stand-up comic. Welcome to Los Angeles. Yeah, don't uh, forget to tip your waitress. Kahn took issue with the scene and filed an $11 million lawsuit against Orion Pictures for libel. He states that he built a reputation on never urging his clients to become an informant. Orion Pictures settled with Khan for what Khan called a substantial sum. Orion Pictures stated that it settled for pragmatic reasons and that Khan was previously paid $15,000 when he signed a release which authorized a, quote, factual or fictional portrayal of himself. <laughs> God. Khan states that he agreed to a fictional portrayal, but not to be slandered. So that's the only harm I have been able to find that has been identified. Has been identified. Uh, with that, let's revisit our grade. I think we gave the film a grade of B. Yes. For uh, factual, with a little bit more information. Are you holding to a B? I'm holding to a B. I'm holding to a B as well for the Falcon and the Snowman. Dawn, I want to thank you for joining me for this. Thank you. All right. Take care. Now is the time when we fact-check ourselves. I can't possibly presume to have every answer for every question that comes up during our conversations. And sometimes, just sometimes, our guests will ask me to do some extra research and I share that information here. For instance, we wondered if Sean Penn's father, Leo Penn, was blacklisted as a writer. He was not. He was an actor who studied at the Actors Studio. When he refused to name names to the House and American Activities Committee, Leo was blacklisted as a film actor. He worked as a TV actor and director until 1995. He passed away in 1998. In our conversation, I mistakenly referred to John Kerr as the prime minister who took over the role after Go Whitlam. I was incorrect. The Prime Minister who followed Whitlam was Malcolm Fraser. Now, during the conversation, Don and I also made some leading comments about the American government's role in Australia's political problems and if the United States fomented those problems. Well, there's not really direct evidence to say the United States government interfered in the political landscape in Australia. But there is circumstantial evidence, which includes Former CIA agent Victor Marchetti said, So long as Australians keep electing the right people, then there'll be a stable relationship between the two countries. Also, Prime Minister Whitlam caused consternation in the Nixon White House by demanding answers about the Pine Gap site. Australia's conservative politicians replied, that there is little difference between America's interest and Australia's. We also have Rupert Murdoch, yes, the same Rupert Murdoch of Fox News, who at the time dominated the Australian media and his news organizations turned on Prime Minister Whitlock. Murdoch issued instructions to his editors to, quote, kill Whitlam. And then the new U.S. ambassador to Australia, Marshall Green, who was appointed by U.S. President Richard Nixon, transferred to Australia from Chile, where the CIA had just toppled the democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, the previous year. 
We also have a telex in which the CIA determined that Prime Minister Whitlam was a security risk to his own country. And lastly, Whitlam was dismissed from his role as Prime Minister on November 11, 1975, by the Australian Governor-General John Kerr. Yes, the R-Man Kerr that was referenced in our conversation. That dismissal of Whitlam took place on the exact same day he was to give a speech about the Pine Gap site. And with that information, we will leave you to decide if the United States meddled in the Australian elections in 1975. I don't think you need a whole lot of string for this corkboard. And lastly, Don wondered about the harm that may have come to the families of Boyce and Lee due to the publicity of their crimes. According to Brian Boyce, who was 12 at the time his older brother was arrested, he was taken out of school for a few weeks. When he returned, he was taunted and bullied. The family house had eggs and paint thrown at it and mailboxes were broken. The Boyce children grew up, moved out, got married, and dispersed throughout the world. Their parents moved to the Pacific Northwest. Brian attended the premiere of The Falcon and the Snowman with his brother Michael. They cried on each other's shoulders. Brian said, It scared me. There I was, watching everything my brother did. It's just another brick wall I will have to climb over to get on with my life. It goes to show that is not only the criminal who serves the time, their family serves it right along with them. And it's one reason, on a personal note, where I feel that biopics need to be accurate, because there are real people who are affected And that wraps it up for another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources that we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash falcon and the snowman. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures for the falcon and the snowman. I have the entire footage of Christopher Boyce's testimony to Congress. Remember as you watch it that this is a man who is currently serving time in solitary confinement, also known as in the process of being tortured by the same government he is testifying to. I want to thank Don for talking about the Falcon and the Snowman with me. Don't forget to tip her if you enjoyed her on this episode. You can do that by making a donation to The Innocence Project. Even though Boyce and Lee were guilty beyond all doubt, there are too many people in this country who get thrown in jail and are actually innocent. Help those people by going to theinnocenceproject.org and donating today. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And when we do, 
we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. Peace out, baby.